BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The Bowery Boys, episode 38, Breakfast at Tiffany and Company. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. Tom is still away this week. I know you all miss him. I miss him too. He'll be back soon, I swear. So I will just have to bedazzle you with this podcast. This week, I will be waxing on, and we'll not only make one more pun, waxing on about the glittery gem of the New York luxury world, Tiffany and Company. For those of you regular listeners, some of the twists and turns in the fate of Tiffany's parallel those of another successful 19th century business owner, which we've talked about in this podcast, Roland Macy, who ended up revolutionizing shopping with his Macy's stores. Tiffany's, of course, caters to a more upper crust clientele and focuses exclusively on jewelry and watches and, well, just basically anything really that needs to be bathed in diamonds and gold. So coming up, I'll give you some rather startling facts, which include the kind of bloody role Tiffany's played on the battlefields of the Civil War, a disastrous diamond scandal. It's always about scandals with me, isn't it? Scand- a diamond scandal that almost damaged their reputation forever. And the reason why you probably associate the name Tiffany with glass, not gold. And oh yes, the little blue box. Why is it blue? Plus, I'll veer off sort of near the end and look at the book and the movie that Tiffany's inspired, Breakfast at Tiffany's by Truman Capote. So get out your charge cards as we do a priceless bit of window shopping at Tiffany and Company. location of Tiffany's is, of course, on 5th Avenue and 57th Street, one of New York City's finest and most well-known retail establishments. For some reason, I, I, I always get really surprised to learn how old Tiffany's is, like how old an institution it is in New York City. It's been a staple here for over 170 years, 
though, despite the sort of sterling reputation that it has now, Tiffany's was basically a very, very modest project started by two old school chums, and their names were Charles Lewis Tiffany and John Young. Tiffany worked in his father's general store in Brooklyn, but that would be Brooklyn, Connecticut. Yes, there's a city called Brooklyn, Connecticut. At age 15, and a little later, he started working at his dad's cotton mill. Well, 10 years later, at age 25, Tiffany borrowed $1,000 from his father. And with his friend John, they decided to embark on their own business. So they moved to New York City, and on September 18th, 1837, they opened a shop, and they called it Tiffany & Young. They specialized not in selling jewelry at first, but they sold stationery and what we would quaintly call fancy goods. Their official catalog eight years later would actually be called the Catalog of Useful and Fancy Articles. So you have your one-stop shopping. You can get your useful articles and you can get your fancy articles here at Tiffany & Young. Some of the fancier articles that they sold at first included Chinese umbrellas. Japanese fans, fabulous lacquered furniture. We also have perfume, moccasins, belts, and the most curious of all, horse whips and dog whips, just in case, you know, you want to whip your dog with something, and a horse whip just won't do it. Their first three days of sales added up to a whopping $4.38. So then how did they create this business that basically still flourishes for 170 years? A little bit of it was luck. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, The Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery+. Tiffany's first location was at 259 Broadway. Today, that would be directly across from City Hall Park in downtown Manhattan. In 1837, this was it was still an affordable neighborhood with sort of upper-class New York. Actually, believe it or not, was further down Broadway. However, the city was quickly expanding north, and soon Tiffany and Young would have such neighbors as the Astor Hotel and the P.T. Barnum Museum to sort of raise the prospects and, of course, the clientele in the neighborhood. They also had an innovative pricing policy for the time, believe it or not. Prices for items at general stores were generally approximations at this time, and you could actually haggle your way with a shop manager depending on the amounts you were buying. At Tiffany & Young's, 
items came with a price tag. And what that price tag said was the price it sold for. This is significant, of course, because as Tiffany's became more successful, those numbers on those price tags would get larger and larger. But the real key to their success was Tiffany's flair for spectacle. In fact, he would even collaborate at times with P.T. Barnum, essentially the master of 19th century spectacle. For instance, he commissioned a miniature horse-drawn carriage made of silver to be used in the wedding of Barnum's midget star, Tom Thumb, and his much freakishly publicized marriage to Lavinia. Their import business flourished, though, because in 1841, they brought in Tiffany's cousin, whose name was Jabez L. Ellis. Now, called Tiffany, Young, and Alice, Young was actually able to go on long purchasing trips abroad and brought back a lot of hand-selected items that you could find nowhere else in New York City. By 1845, they were actually making enough money that they could move down a bit to 271 Broadway, right in the heart of it all. That's the year that they actually started selling real jewelry. Before this time, they were actually selling costume jewelry, what they called Pastes. The first line of this costume wear was actually called Palais Royal, which was an emulation of French jewelry, but no more. In 1845, they started selling real jewelry and even making it themselves, manufacturing these unique gold, silver jewelry, and of course, eventually sterling flatware. It was in this decade, too, that diamonds, real diamonds, began showing up at the counter. Young was able to take advantage of a little French wartime upheaval that was going on in Europe. And at this time, with the plummeting prices in Paris, he managed to purchase a huge amount of diamonds and shipping them back for sale to the store. In 1853, Charles Tiffany actually takes over the entire business and gives it the name that it currently wears today, Tiffany & Company. Although the official brochures may not quite say it this particular way, the United States Civil War was actually very good to Tiffany's, at least to their reputation. Tiffany's made military equipment, including swords and surgical tools for the Union Army. Right after the war, they presented ceremonial gem-encrusted swords to Generals Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. But their most loyal customer during this time was the president's wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, who would basically emerge from the depths of her depression and go on several shopping sprees there. Post-Civil War Gilded Age was, of course, even better for a luxury retailer like Tiffany's. They now, at this time, moved up to Union Square, which is the heart of Ladies Mile Shopping District now, and were one of the most prestigious and revered stores in the area. Given Charles Tiffany's propensity for publicity, his showrooms were basically tourist attractions for the upper class, Nothing illustrates this more than his purchase of a big, fat yellow stone called the Tiffany Diamond, which he purchased in 1878 at this monstrous size of 287.42 carats. It was like a baseball. And then they basically carved it down so it looked elegant and refined at 128.54 carats. The Tiffany Diamond was never actually purchased by anybody, but it was these kind of renowned and extravagant purchases that cemented Tiffany's reputation as being the showroom of simply the best. And even later in 1887, he would acquire many of the French crown jewels to display in his store. And it's then that Charles officially got his nickname, the King of Diamonds. But not everything would be so sparkling with Tiffany's. I'm sorry, I made another pun there. I promised I wasn't going to. Not everything would be so grand with Tiffany. Charles was caught up in what is sort of affectionately known as the Great Diamond Hoax of 1872. This scandal, by the way, is happening around the same time as the Henry Ward Beecher sex scandal. 
New York in the 1870s, wow. Anyway, two Kentucky prospectors named John Slack and Philip Arnold came back from the new western front with a large sack of diamonds, claiming that they had found a huge diamond mine. So they brought these stones back to Tiffany, who had the diamonds inspected, and then proclaimed, Gentlemen, these are beyond question precious stones of enormous value. He then proceeded to value those stones at $150,000. Tiffany and a small group of investors then purchased the pair's interest in this land, supposedly bursting with diamonds and other gemstones. But to keep in mind, Tiffany was clearly not a rube. I mean, the two phonies had really created an elaborate ruse. And this was an era where, you know, mountains of riches were coming out of the West faster than you could keep up with. And just to let you know that he was in good company with a small group of investors, he was there with Horace Greeley, Civil War General George McClellan, and the Baron von Rothschild. Our two little friends, John Slack and Philip Arnold, swiftly disappeared. Tiffany then dispatched geologists to this area, to this mesa in Wyoming, who then discovered that the pair had merely dusted the surface of the mesa with random gems, the scraps from diamond and gem cutters, the leftover trash stones from various real mines in South Africa, Tiffany had effectively purchased nothing. Although this clearly temporarily diminished Tiffany's name, his son, however, would soon ensure that the name Tiffany would be associated with another luxury item, which was designed stained glass. Lewis Comfort Tiffany branched out into his own series of glassmaking studios, eventually designing windows for homes of the rich, churches, and even mausoleums. I was strolling through Woodlawn Cemetery about a few months ago in October, you know, as a Bowery Boys want to do on an October day, and was totally shocked to see that all these different displays of Tiffany glass were sort of gleaming from the gigantic mausoleum windows. Louis Tiffany's glass would eventually be sold at his father's store, and when Charles died in 1902, Louis himself would become an artistic director for the shop. By the 20th century, Tiffany's has become such the standard in riches and diamonds that their standard of purity in platinum became the U.S. standard, and the modern system of weighing diamonds, basically using carrots, was actually partially devised by Tiffany's leading gemologist. Yes, gemologist. A gemologist is sort of where a jeweler and a geologist meet. Finally, in 1940, Tiffany and Company moved to the building where we know them today at 57th Street and 5th Avenue. The next chapter in Tiffany's evolution from retailer to romantic icon of class could not possibly be predicted by old Charles. A young flamboyant writer by the name of Truman Capote, who had broken through in the late 40s with a novel called Other Voices, Other Rooms, and had since then become a rather vivid New York celebrity by this time, decided to pen a story about a glamorous but naive Upper East Side woman. Breakfast at Tiffany's had actually little to do with Tiffany's itself, but the story, which was a huge success, did feature a heroine, Holly Golightly, who essentially worships at the altar of Tiffany's. In 1961, the film version directed by Blake Edwards was released, and yes, let's please step over the fact that Mickey Rooney plays an Asian man, and George Pappard is basically a boring lump, and that Patricia Neal character isn't even in the book. 
forget all of that because it's about Audrey Hepburn and only Audrey Hepburn that turned this movie and by indirect effect Tiffany itself into a little bit of movie magic. The opening scene, of course, features a cab riding up empty Fifth Avenue and dropping Holly off in front of Tiffany's, which is closed because it's totally like six in the morning or something. She's still in the full gown and pearls and she's just there to ogle and window shop. She cracks open her delicatessen coffee and eats that cruller or that roll, whatever it is. After over 125 years of Tiffany being defined by the upper class, here was a movie that was defining its effect on those who couldn't quite afford to shop there herself. Well, I mean, in this case, without a little help from male suitors. It's telling, by the way, that Holly Golightly wears pearls from Tiffany's and not diamonds, which she claims are tacky on women under 40. I suppose that's true. Since we've been talking high prices and expensive purchases, perhaps the best way to gauge the movie's effect on our culture is the following fact. In 2006, one of Audrey's Givenchy black dresses from that scene sold at auction for $1 million, the highest price ever paid for a movie costume. Oh, and by the way, remember that gigantic yellow Tiffany diamond I mentioned? It's only been worn by two people ever. A lady named Mary Whitehouse for the 1957 Tiffany Ball. And no surprise, the second person was actress Audrey Hepburn. By the way, what about that little blue box, as they say? That signature blue color of Tiffany's? Believe it or not, Tiffany's has been putting its items in this robin's egg blue boxes and bags since 1837, since they opened. This was another one of Charles Tiffany's clever promotional tactics, one that I would have to say has obviously worked. Tiffany's items are still packaged in blue, and the color called Tiffany Blue is actually trademarked. And to all you Pantone and color processing geeks out there, and I know some of you are, Tiffany Blue's PMS number, or Pantone Matching System number, is 1837, which of course is the year that Tiffany started. Tiffany's itself is still going strong. They eat off Tiffany plates at the White House, thanks to a commission from Lady Bird Johnson in 1968. You know, and since they've started selling jewelry, thousands of women have married with Tiffany's diamonds on their fingers. Tiffany currently has a line of jewelry designed by, believe it or not, architect Frank Gehry. And the pieces actually don't look like sheet metal factories just exploded. And there you have it. Thank you for following along with this very inexpensive history of Tiffany's. Thanks to everyone who's been writing and sending emails. I'm sorry. I'm I'm quite behind on emails. I know I'll, I'll get to them this week. And I totally, we totally appreciate it. We love the feedback. Check us out on Facebook if you're a member. Just sign on and become a fan. We've got a fun little community on there. And as always, check out our blog at www.boweryboyspodcast.com. It is chock full of fun stuff every week. Next week, we have an extra special episode. And then Tom will be back, I swear. Anyway, have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you soon. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide 
at bp.com slash investing in America.